welcome back to Crypto Sapiens. Today's episode is a bit different than others you may have grown familiar with. It is one of a four-part mini-series that explores journalism and Web3. DiGiorno is a series hosted by Crypto Sapiens with the help of a DiGiornoDAO and other top builders in the Web3 and journalism space. It seeks to return to the roots and definition of what journalism is all about and to demystify the concepts and tools in Web3 that can aid in the process of decentralizing journalism. We hope to present to you, our dear listeners, with many of the novel applications that are being developed today. I truly hope you enjoy this content and find it useful in your crypto journey. So let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to episode four of the DiGiorno series. In this series, we have talked about Web3 and journalism. We talked about the foundations of journalism in the first episode. In the second episode, we talked about some of the tooling that uh, journalists can use to go more Web3 friendly. And then in the third episode, we talked about censorship. And, uh, you know, we solved censorship in that one hour episode for good. So not really. We still have tons more to talk about. And today we are going to be tackling the concept of public goods in journalism. Should journalism be a public good or is journalism a business? And how can Web3 help journalism bridge those two worlds? Okay, so I guess we can start with uh, just some brief introductions of who we have here. So we'll start from the top with Keith. Uh, yeah. Hi, Keith Axline. I'm a software developer in Portland, Oregon. Uh, previously worked at uh, Wired Magazine and Medium as an editor before I became a software developer and uh, joined JournoDAO uh, early on. And I'm excited uh, for all the projects that we have going. Hi, I'm Crystal Street. I um, live near Boulder, Colorado, and I'm a community builder in the Impact DAO space. Um, entered this space around 2017 professionally, and uh, was a former photojournalist for several decades. And yeah, excited about all the stuff we've got going on here. Hey guys, I'm Spencer. I uh, have a background in film and television, and I originally got into Web3 through financial speculation maybe around three years ago. And then I gradually started learning about the non-financial applications and that's what really got me interested. And I met Eric in, uh, in through through Discord around a year ago now when the JournoDAO server first started. And since then I've been helping JournoDAO in various ways and, and it's been a, a privilege. Hey everyone. Uh, yeah, been in the space since 2016, speculating at that time, wondering what Bitcoin was like I think a lot of people were. Uh, 2018 is when I started building, uh, founded uh, the first business uh, that I did in Web3 uh, looked very different at that time uh, than it does today. Uh, the tooling for a lot of decentralized organizations didn't exist, so we built a lot of them from scratch. Uh, around 2020, I became really interested in decentralized identity. I started contributing to a few different projects, including Ontology, uh, Bright ID, uh, to understand that a little bit better. Uh, founded Crypto Sapiens to facilitate these types of conversations ac uh, across the global uh, community, excuse me. And uh, now I'm building something new. I'm pretty excited to reveal it soon. So I guess uh, with the introductions aside, we can start with um, just some of the basic concepts of it. Uh, first of all, I do want to start with the definition of public good. What is a public good? Um, it can mean, well, I don't know if it can mean a lot of things or not. I'll let you guys decide that. But according to Wikipedia, a public good is a good that is both non-excludable and non-rivalrous. So anybody want to break that down and define what non-excludable and non-rivalrous mean? I can I can take a stab at it. To me, non-rivalrous means that it's 
can't, like there isn't like a limited sum of it, so it's not consuming it isn't competitive. You can think of open source code doesn't have a limited amount of times it can be copied, whereas certain natural resources have some limited amount. And so there's a kind of a competition for who can claim it or consume it. And then non-excludable, I believe, means that it can't be put behind some kind of paywall or put behind some kind of exclusive gate or something to limit who can access it. But but I could have that definition wrong. Yeah, that's pretty accurate there, Spencer. So public goods really kind of started, um, I mean, it started hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but in the modern context and the way we use it, um, it really kind of stemmed from voluntary simplicity movement in the 70s. And then it also coincided with a lot of the early computing um, ecosystems from the 70s. And like what you're saying, Spencer, it really generated from hackers who were trying to build technology that was completely open for anyone to use. And they tried to maintain that until, you know, Microsoft and some of the big corporations came along in the late 70s, early 80s. And then they began to do market enclosures on this um, on these public goods. So that's where you really saw the split in the computing community in the hacker community, too, where they were trying to maintain this, the code to make it completely open. That's kind of where you saw Linux and Microsoft kind of make that split. So, and that's kind of like the foundation for where we are now. I mean, blockchain is kind of a revitalization of that original ethos of that hacker um, community. I think one of the people that has done a really good job at explaining public goods, and I think that's just because that's been the focus of one of the companies that he helped to found in the space is uh, Kevin Owaki. Um, uh, who's recently disassociated from Gitcoin. Uh, but, you know, that is something that he helped to uh, develop in the early days because of that uh, need for funding these uh, public good projects, right? These services, open source software, as I think someone mentioned earlier today. Um, one of the things that he likes, I think I've heard him say, is talk about like air and water, right? Like these are things that are non-excludable, like access to air, is not excludable. Access to water is not excludable. So I think thinking of it from that framework maybe gives us a good perspective in terms of the way that we can look at public goods and uh, you know, kind of the the need for uh, protecting and, and supporting the development of public goods in general. And, and along those lines too, to, to tie it into journalism. Um, one of the big stories um, that was broken back in the 1950s by Edward R. Murrow, um, that really brought to light the difference between commercialization and journalism as a public good, where he had to fight with the executives at CBS in order to get the resources to continue um, attacking, well, attacking is not the right word for journalism, but, you know, um, to going after um, Senator McCarthy during McCarthyism. And that story eventually brought down McCarthy but there was a huge, huge um, riff between the advertisers, executives, and journalism itself. And in one of his um, speeches, after he won an award for that project, he really ripped into the structure of media and how it needs to be a public good. And if not, then you will always have this commingling of um, corporate incentives and it dictating the, um, the narratives that we produce. Is information or what information is public good. And by that same thread, is the internet a public good that supports access to information? Maybe you can make an argument that certain private information shouldn't be like uh, available as a public good. 
Um, but I'm, I'm not sure where to, where to draw those lines. Um, but in, in my mind, in general, public goods at least notionally go towards some kind of common opportunity and increasing common opportunity. Because we don't, obviously, opportunity isn't equally distributed. And the idea is that public goods can help at least notionally increase the kind of the, the bottom total shared level of opportunity or resources that people have. And, and information now is, it's, it's almost up there with air um, in terms of how important it is. That's, but I'm not sure where to draw the lines of, of what information should be a public good and what should be private. Yeah, it looks like we just had Eric Mack jump on as well. Um, we're talking about basically defining public goods right now as non-excludable and non-rivalrous. Uh, sure. Okay, great. We jump right into uh, Econ 101. <laughs> it's early <laughs> in the morning, but um, I, mean, I, I think this is, um, sorry, can you, can you hear me now? I'm on a new, yeah, new router, yes. uh, new router who dis. Uh, so I, mean, I think this is one of the great uh, struggles of like the last 150 years actually is this uh, for control over, you know, what is uh, in the public sphere and, and what is in, in the private sphere. And uh, I, I think those lines are, are shifting all the time. And, it, you know, it kind of comes down to what, what the public demands, you know, and uh, in, in many ways over the last 50 or so years, um, you know, the, the private sphere has really, has really won in, in clawing back a lot of, of control over, over information in particular. I mean, the, the internet started out as, and the actual protocols remain a public good, but uh, you know, everything that's been built on top of that, as I'm sure Crystal already talked about while I was fritzing in and out, uh, is, has, been, has been private. And so, I mean, I would think it's probably time for the pendulum to swing back the other way. And I, cause I think we're seeing, um, you know, some of the, uh, the dumpster fires in action of, of, uh, things that should be public goods, but that are treated as, as private commodities. Yeah. I think we've been in like a, a sweet spot for a while where like consumers were, or just people were okay with, uh, the privatization of, um, journalism and news because the end product was like, um, you know, better than what they had. It was good. Nobody felt like they couldn't get the information, uh, that they wanted. And then I think it's only when those, when that stops being true, uh, then we start evaluating like the, the principles and the foundations that, you know, our, our information is, is built on. And I think there's a demand for that. That's kind of one of the few things that's uniquely crossing across a lot of different agendas and <laughs> desires right now. And I think that um, I'm excited that the focus is been brought back to public goods and the lack of prioritizing prioritizing public goods is like a lot of the reason why why we're here um and so if we can make that a top priority again and everyone everyone realizes that in order to get what they want no matter what they want we need to have like a solid foundation of public goods in place i just wanted to ask this real quick air and water are something that is made naturally it's free it's, it's abundant it's all around us Things like code has to be made by somebody. Things like journalism and and watchdogs and and things like that that has to be created by humans. So somebody's got to pay for that. Somebody has to help support those people who create that stuff. Unlike air and water. So so how do you mitigate that? Actually, I think that's a perfect example to why Gitcoin 
exists, right? It is uh, basically, uh, it exists to be able to provide a platform for uh, organizations to come together and fund that, but also communities and individuals to do the same thing. So I agree, uh, there's a cost to producing some of these goods. Um, it's a matter of prioritizing um, where our monies are spent, where our money is spent, right? And so, I, yeah, I think that's why I come back to, and I think there's more platforms than Gitcoin, obviously, but I just, I think that that, for me, at least is one of the more familiar ones. And it's why I tend to use them more often as an example. And sorry, Chris, I didn't mean to cut you off. I really just wanted to ask that question. I'll, I'll let you continue. Oh, no, that's okay. It's a great question. Um, because in the past, media was published, uh, was supported through um, a lot of government money, a lot of subsidies. Um, you know, it helped it's, and still is, um, you know, okay. NPR is partially funded through donations and also, you know, government subsidies. So in the absence of, of those vehicles, we definitely need to explore different alternative economic systems, which is why we're all here. Um, one thing I did want to mention um, with Keith and Eric's point is that one thing we are exploring here, I think, as a as a collective is how to unravel the market enclosures that Web2 brought in to the space. And we've talked about this in some past podcasts. I think it dovetails into the funding question as well. You know, how do you unravel that market enclosure when it's so strong? And when we saw like Twitter at scale is now the town square, but it's now owned by, you know, questionable billionaires. Um, I, I would just add, uh, you know, that Journalism is in like a, a really kind of weird space because um, it's really only accountable or should only be accountable to uh, the truth and, and to delivering the, the truth to its audience. Um, so it's in, it's in a weird space where it kind of needs to be keep um, like all funding models at a distance while also like depending on them. And what I mean by that is like it's it's like like so maybe we don't like privately funded media news so much. So I guess we should make it publicly funded, but it's like, that's not really the answer as well because it's important for journalists to remain skepticism towards governments and like all institutions uh, of, of power. Um, so there, there kind of has to be, it's never going to be easy, <laughs> um, which I think is why it's been hard to do away with, the advertising model, because while it's not ideal, like uh, being completely state funded makes you a propaganda arm, um, which is why I think there's some real interesting potential in in Web3 uh, in, in, in terms of being able to provide real community based um, financial support that is kind of quasi private and quasi public. And it's, it's kind of a fascinating uh, third way, I think. I think we're waking up from this. Um the sort of inherent uh, perception that public goods are, um, they're kind of neutral on the value spectrum. But I think what we're starting to find and what I think is true is like our, our perspective expands to uh, account for more and more things in the economy is that there's um, a lot of value circulating because of public goods and, um, and it's mostly being pulled out of public goods and then given to like private organizations. And I think I'm open to the fact that like there might be a world where you could uh, get the in incentives aligned where there is like an actual feedback loop uh, of value back uh, into the public goods 
and that everyone prioritizes them because it's it's acknowledged that that's in everybody's best interest. It's kind of like, um, you know, you don't get you don't get Facebook without the internet, and you don't get the internet and the way that Facebook can build on it if it's not a public good. And so, if we want these, if we want our economy to expand, if we want productivity to continue to increase at like um, you know exponential levels, then we need these unlocks and public goods kind of raise, they raise the floor of that we can all build on. And I think I'm optimistic that even the most like selfish capitalist will kind of <laughs> start thinking more in the long term because we've seen like the short term thinking just kind of like runs the same course again and again. Um, but if we can all collectively raise the floor, then everyone can, you know, build very profitable, successful things on these um, new public goods. And then, uh, you know, we can raise the floor again and we can keep ratcheting up and uh, keep delivering value to more and more people and just making uh, things more equitable while also keeping that profit cycle uh, going. I, I think you need both really. And we've been too much on the the extraction uh, profit side, and we need to, you know, go back and ratchet up the floor. What I'm finding interesting, and this dovetails with what Keith just said, as a lot of journalists are heading over to Mastodon, their their chatter is fascinating because they're looking for the features that were present in Twitter in a centralized platform, and they're like, why aren't these features here at Mastodon? So now they're actually understanding that those features were made by a centralized entity. Now they're on a decentralized platform. So it's up to the person that runs the server really to code that into the system. So they're really having to look hard at how they use these platforms, why they use them, and then who controls them. And that's fascinating to watch journalists in scale make migrate to something like this and try to figure it out in real time openly. I'm completely fascinated by that, that transfer. So what incentivizes the people to add in the type of you know extra functionality if it's an open source, non-funded platform in a way? I think they just have to want it enough and they have to have the the developer skill set like like Keith has to to like sit there and look at it and say, how do I solve this problem? Either I'm gonna have to solve it myself or I'm gonna have to find somebody to solve it for me. And in the past, you would just complain enough to um, you know, a centralized platform and then maybe they would build it. But now um, they just have to build it themselves, which mm. so now they have to actually understand how these platforms really work. And, and this gets at a critical thing in my mind is if we're talking about public goods, almost competing with private goods in terms of business models. It's almost like there's a some competitive disadvantage for public goods in terms of funding. And it almost requires public good oriented journalists to make that kind of sacrifice in terms of I guess, like career opportunities perhaps, or they have to believe in it enough to offset any kind of um, like uh, career disadvantage with going the public good route. And, and like to my, in my mind, a lot of public goods is predicated on there being people that are so motivated to make those kind of sacrifices. And it, it brings in a lot of interesting questions for me. In my mind, like the way this can be solved is if we actually materialize um, and make explicit all the value that people get out of public goods journalism. It's like once once we kind of uh, outsourced funding of 
um, journalism to like the government or being subsidized by advertising, then the value kind of got really murky for everybody. And it, it became, it felt like air, but then like you had to pay for it sometimes. You know, like I've just been breathing this whole time and now I have to pay for air. And uh, uh, we need a, a way for the people collectively and individually who derive value from having like quality journalism at their fingertips every day um, to actually support that endeavor directly without going through these like diluting mediums of advertising or, or government. And I, mm -hmm. I think that's why uh, Web3 is interesting and in just building a direct uh, value transfer relationship with uh, a journalist individually or like a news organization um, and making that explicit. And it is like a, a, con a mind shift, I think, on both sides, both from the publisher journalist side and the consumer side. Um, but I think things are breaking badly enough now that I think that conceptual shift is worth making for a lot of people. I mean, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about it like that, but I, I do agree where if, if we're better able to quantify the value of public goods, people may be able to better recognize how much they were benefited from public goods and may feel more willing to to kind of give back in that public goods spirit or, or be willing to recognize you know, like, like certain trade-offs that they wouldn't be able to recognize if those public good benefits continued on being invisible like air or like able to, so easily able to be taken for granted. I think that that's a really uh, interesting point. Um, I find that um, projects like giveth.io and doing good find a way to invest in a public good while still being able to make make a profit as as a donor um do you think there's a type of moral quandary there in order for people because people whenever they donate to a public good they just that's pretty much it they just throw the money down the funnel and it's gone and they just have to write it off as the tax write-off so giveth has a structure in which people can receive those give tokens back for donating and then they plug it into their DeFi platform and then people can, in a way, donate and speculate. <laughs> I mean, I, I could be, I'm not familiar with, with how Giveth does it and I could be missing something, but at least in my mind, the only way to reconcile public goods with return on investment is if there's enough donation volume for there to constitute some kind of profit for investors. Um, I mean, maybe there's some other way to, to balance those two, but I almost think if there's any kind of, if there's anyone involved that's expecting some profit or return on investment, then it seems difficult, if not impossible, for that for the product of that whole arrangement to be to constitute a public good. But maybe I'm, I'm overlooking something or being too too critical there. Again, I'll bring it back to Gitcoin. Again, I, that's the only platform that I think I've used uh, with any kind of uh, frequency to have an opinion about it. But if you look at their grants uh, that happen on a quarterly basis, you can see a lot of centralized institutions that are putting in money into those grant pools that are then distributed across a variety of different projects that are being voted on by the community, right? Through their own uh, money, right? Because they have this process called quadratic funding where the more... Uh, support you're getting for your project, your campaign, uh, 
the more uh, the higher the match. The question could be, what's the incentive for these institutions to be putting in money? I'm sure some of it could be considered, you know, a tax write-off. I don't know. I, I, I can't speak for them. But when you see the conversations that are being had between these organizations and Gitcoin and these organizations and the community that is being funded through Gitcoin, you realize that it's to their advantage to support these types of projects because the more of these projects that are born out of platforms like these, that are funded through platforms like these, the more likely this ecosystem will thrive. If I mean, for me, if I learned anything from you, everything that's been going on in the space over the last couple of weeks is that we need to lean on these decentralized projects, organizations a little bit more than on these centralized organizations, right? If we want to see this decentralized uh, you know, blockchain, decentralized identity, whatever, all of these different decentralized ecosystems flourish, we need to fund, uh, you know, these ideas and these creators and these developers to actually make use of the technology. So I see Polygon up here right now as a uh, grantor, you know, for GR15. I see Coinbase. I see Yearn Finance. Like these are big organizations in the ecosystem. I can see why Polygon would want to have projects receive funding because it is more likely that those projects, as they uh, prove their concept, can go to that Polygon ecosystem and make use of it, validate it, like allow that ecosystem to grow. So that's just kind of my thoughts based on how uh, this platform works uh, and some of the incentives to these organizations uh, to fund these uh, public goods. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense, actually, when you explain it that way and how if there's some organization that's contributing a lot to these uh, quadratic funding rounds, but with certain strings attached, like if there's a certain matching category that is funded from this one organization, then there's probably certain certain criteria that the projects need to meet to be eligible for that. And in a way, it's almost like the, the grantor there is kind of investing in their own consumer base or to try to expand the amount of projects or users that end up engaging with their product or service. So it's, it's almost like a, like a weird kind of roundabout way of some like roundabout return on investment that isn't just as linear as, as profits, but it, it makes sense. And in, in my mind, it seems like it's a, a pretty good kind of balancing of interests there, but I'm sure there's still ways it could be, you know, unsavory. I mean, I, I just think it's all about, um, you know, transparency and, uh, you know, that's, that's something that this, this tech offers is, and actually, you know, it's, it's in the way that you've phrased the, the notion Humpty is that like, well, maybe these, um, you know, centralized platforms and bigger organizations are, are making these donations as a, as a tax write-off, uh, which the IRS probably isn't recognizing Gitcoin as a potential tax write-off just yet. Uh, but the, I mean, the point is that if it, like the concept of a tax write-off, like that's an incentive that like we as uh, a polity of people, uh, you know, put into place to actually incentivize these bigger organizations to, you know, give back a little bit towards public goods in in most cases um so like like I, we kind of cynically say like it's just a tax write-off but that like that's actually the system working in the way that we designed it um and what is like new and exciting is 
with with smart contracts and with with blockchain, you know, we can more clearly see where this money is flowing and how it's flowing into, um, you know, media outlets, coffers. And you could do the same thing uh, for advertisers and sponsors. Like all those transactions can be transparent and, and on chain and, and more so the, you know, like what is allowed and what the ethical code is in terms of how those um, contributions can influence or should not influence um, coverage. Like that can all be transparently coded in. And so, you know, these are just a few of the new advantages that we're working with that I don't think people have even begun to explore yet. So by coded in, do you mean, I mean, physically coded in a protocol to where you, where funds wouldn't actually be physically able to go to specific destinations? Yeah, like, I mean, I could imagine, you know, like, uh, you know, splits or something, you, know, like you have a, a certain, um, you know, say like a certain protocol wants to fund a certain um, like issue area. So like maybe CELA wants to fund climate change coverage or something like that. Well, they could, you know, designate, you know, like exactly how much of their contribution goes towards this, you know, broad issue area. And then you can actually see it flowing into a multi-sig or something yeah. like that. And that's just a really basic idea. I'm sure there could be all other kinds of innovations that we haven't even thought of yet. Uh, for me, what makes it a little bit tractable or like a framework that I, I think about things is um, like what what timeline are um, actors acting on? And so the problem with uh, shared space and <laughs> the public uh, goods concept with humanity has always been that like the people who think in short term uh, can create problems for everyone else who is like either unable to take those short-term opportunities or is are kept out of them and so you get like you get the kings and the feudal lords and and all that stuff and the problem is um if you actually look long term like was that actually a pleasant life to lead like in your in your castle like without anybody uh around telling you anything i i, I truly think of it in like quality of life like mark zuckerberg could you know buy an island and just hole up there and like live the rest of his life there um very comfortably with all these cool toys and stuff um while the world burns um but i think we all kind of inherently realize that that's like a bad a bad trade-off right and so to comp uh to mitigate those sort of short-term thinking actors we have this idea of like the government or some sort of um, external entity that incentivizes the like long-term investments so that like these these bad, not bad actors, but extractive actors don't kind of like ruin the whole game for everybody. And so I think I think of it in terms of like quality of life. It's like, okay, if Facebook is maximally successful, like is that even like a world that the people working at, at Facebook and the people using Facebook would want to live in. And I think in most cases, no, it's not. <laughs> there's no, um, it's just extraction and there's no regenerative qualities to it. Like nobody, the people providing the value are not the people receiving the value back in return. And so I think if if we assume that like we inherently all want over the, the long term to have these regenerative economics where 
we put in value and then we get more value out. And that's kind of like what the the boom times and the, the economy have been. Then we really need to revisit these uh, these priorities of um, extraction and short termism. And I think oddly, like corporations are finally getting on board with that, like buying carbon offsets. And um, even if it's just because it's like bad PR uh, to not do that or, or whatever the incentives are, like we're finally starting to see like a corporation see the 10, 20 year horizon be like, oh, uh, you know, I'm, I won't be able to do business if everybody dies. So like, I guess <laughs> I start contributing back <laughs> to public goods to sustain uh, these little human batteries that operate my machine. And, and along those lines, I mean, we really have to have the onboarding for people that do see what Keith's talking about. And we're seeing it, you know, at Twitter and at Facebook right now where there's so much chaos and, and so much upheaval. We need to have containers and onboard ramps for people that are looking for another option but aren't yet in our ecosystem. I think one of the things that happened last week was that we were able to watch a huge crime happen in real time on chain. And once the dust settles and people understand what actually happened, especially those that aren't familiar with this ecosystem, then if we have these containers for them to flow into, then they can see that long-term vision that Keith's talking about because there's already a whole community of people working on these solutions in the public good framework. And there's transparency built into the code, like Eric's saying. Can, can one of you really quickly, just for listeners who might not understand what happened last week, yeah, sure, FTX and exchange crashed and it destroyed the crypto market. But what do you mean by being able to watch that all on chain? Eric, do you want to take this one since you're doing that research or do you want me to nerd out? Um, well, we could tag team it. I, I mean, I would just say that like for months now, um, someone, someone in our community, uh, uh, Nick, who's a, a researcher, I mean, for like months, he's he's been saying there's like something weird going on between FTX and Alameda Research. And he's been he's been looking at on-chain data since like when I first met him at the beginning of the year. And like he's kind of been saying like I, I don't know what it is but like it it's 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 sketchy uh and so you know and i think finally a um uh you know coindesk had a hand in this and and uh then cz from binance seized on it seeing that like uh okay maybe everything ftx uh uh has isn't exactly uh backed up one for one and in fact they might be backstopping everything with their own uh native token um, and the footprints of that are are all on chain, and then, and then the transactions, you know, started happening. That um, just reinforced that that thesis. I think. Does that seem like a a good quick summary? Yeah. Um, and when the start, story started breaking last week, I was trying to ignore it. I'm like, it doesn't affect us. We don't deal with centralized exchanges. That's not our wheel well. And then my brother-in-law, who's a corporate lawyer, uh, he specializes in bankruptcy, he starts texting me on Friday. He's like, hey, do you know what this thing is? I was like, oh, God. So I dove into it. And then Friday night, and I told him, I said, keep an eye on um, the wallets. And I told him I would show him how. But keep an eye on the wallets. When money starts to come out of wallets that are associated with this exchange, you're going to see who the whales are in this whole ecosystem because they're going to have early access to get their money out if it's still there. So I was on Twitter looking for something else Friday night, and then I saw one of these um, data analysts, very much like Nick, um, post tweeting about money moving out of these wallets in that moment. So I started watching that conversation, and it turned out to be all of the money just flowing right out. 
Um, and it still remains to be seen how and why that happened. Um, there's tons of speculation, but it was a, it was fascinating to see that large of a crime. It's going to be one of the biggest financial crimes ever to see it happen from people on Twitter just watching blockchain transactions, and they were able to report it in real time. And somebody made the analogy that like this is like the white Ford Bronco moment from like OJ <laughs> in the 80s, and I actually watched that too, and I'm like, yeah, they're not wrong. Yeah, it's it's funny that um, somebody's these people, these random people are just doing it out of the goodness of their their own hearts, I guess, or maybe just their curiosity, you know, to just watch the blockchain. Um, who funds these people, right? And what is a good way to get these people, these investigators, these watchdogs, the funding that they need in a decentralized decentralized way? Because what if FTX owned those people? You know, we would never probably never hear about it from a centralized point of view. You know. I, mean, I look at the status quo that you're you're talking about, John, is actually kind of a mess right now uh, because yeah, the people with the skills and the knowledge to really dig into the blockchain transaction are either uh, they're either working for a handful of firms like Chainalysis that um, you know have have some of the better tools, um, but like they're really they're not available. They're not making them available to the public. They're some of their largest uh, contracts are with um, uh, government agencies. Um, you have other people uh, who do a lot of this work uh, online and on on Twitter and reveal um, a lot of really interesting stuff. But uh, some of the more prominent ones are all anonymous, which is a problem in terms of incentives and accountability in my mind. Um, so, like, you know, it's crazy. There's actually not a ton of of journalists. I can't really think of any right now um, that are like trained both in in journalism and in these kind of blockchain analytics. Um, so it's this like massive void in my mind. Uh, so if you're in J school and uh, you wanna you wanna niche to to specialize and in, look into it. Yeah, and we're we're circling back to the beginning of this conversation. I mean, hackers are the ones that made all this top technology to begin with. And they're the ones that are sitting in their, in their hacker spaces together um, or alone and doing this work. And I was a part of, I was an active member in a hacker space for a long time and they had day jobs and their day jobs um, were white hat hacking. And it allowed them the space and the time to do this work on their own, just from the perspective of a public good. They see it as like a vigilante type approach to just maintain goodness in the world through through that type of research. So mm. yeah, they, they funded that work themselves through, through corporate money. And they, they kind of like sticking it to the man that way. You know, <laughs> by the day I'm getting paid by the man and by night I'm gonna take him down, which is kind of beautiful. And the whole Mr. Robot was based off of that whole premise. Just one quick point, as I say, this kind of yeah. brings it back to the, the the public goods thing, which is, you know, the, most of these tools that have been built to do blockchain analysis, um, like none of them have been built as, as public goods. They've either been built primarily to serve uh, investors, crypto investors, or to serve um, huge corporations or government agencies that can hand out huge contracts. There's not, there's not really a super powerful tool um, that like anyone can easily access or that was built like as a public good. There's some some cheaper ones like, uh, you know, bread, breadcrumbs and Nansen are, are, are interesting, but again, like they're really targeting like investors. So like nothing's really been built with the public interest in mind to, to police this stuff. 
Yeah, and we had to use, um, when we did our, our open source Intel at that hackerspace, we had to use tools that they had access to through their private contractors. So these were extremely high dollar tools, very, very powerful, freakishly powerful, um, but nobody had access to them. We had to get access through somebody's contract with some other entity they worked for. I think this is an externality of the um, the software economy being built on user user data because we had these um, large scale companies and services that appeared to be public goods. I think you know Twitter and maybe less so Facebook now occupies a space in our heads of like that you know we call it the global town square and um, it could reach that scale and behave as a public square because it was this company's uh it was to their benefit to have the as many people on it as possible to like extract um as much data as possible and uh i think we need to i'm not sure we have the right model like in all of human history i'm not sure that it exists and i think we might that why that might be why we're kind of spinning around in circles on this one because I don't think we've ever had to articulate like what a global public good should be, like how the value should be uh, donated or contributed, how who who and what is allowed to extract value from it and in what ways. And so I think we, whenever there's uh, uncharted territory, I think it just helps to go back to like first principles where like if we can at least all acknowledge they like this having this public good rather than a bunch of like tiny like private things that could go away at any time um and that are completely excludable and rivalrous like instead of that just having a a thing that everybody can use we've seen that be like so good for the economy for businesses like you know our biggest businesses are built on like the latest public good. It's like the roads and the, the trains and the internet, like all these things enabled us to flourish and like reach new heights of technology and, and equity and humanity. But until we all kind of, until that's like a story that everybody that lives in everybody's heads, then we're still going to get the short-term actors kind of ruining it for, <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> and maybe we're at the precipice of, um, you know, making a change there. And that's, I see a lot of these, like maybe unprecedented opportunities with, with, uh, journalism. And that's why a lot of what we do is experiments at, at JournalDAO because like, uh, I don't think values ever flow, <laughs> flowed this way before. <laughs> I don't think journalists have ever thought, oh, what if I didn't have to, um, give up, uh, a net worth like to to work on this thing that is important to society um, but no one will ever pay me to do what what accounts do you all think for the success and the staying power of of wikipedia because it, it kind of stands out to me as a public mm -hmm. good that has remained so for almost two decades when everything else has kind of been enclosed by um you know a private platform but for some reason and it, it actually seems like um a private company actually could have come in and and eclipsed it but it hasn't is it just like a first mover thing what do you think i think so i think it be, it was the first on the scene and it became used at scale and it became a almost a verb 
So I think everybody, it was just the first. And so people maintained it because it became so valuable so fast. And I think a lot of us who grew up using encyclopedias, were like, oh, this is great. I don't have to go look it up in an encyclopedia. So, but I, I think there might also be some funding involved there. I can't remember and I can't cite it, but I do remember reading some research about the funding behind Wikipedia as well. But I'm going to call it right here. I think Wikipedia is headed for the same fate as Twitter and, and Facebook. Like, I just don't think that the underlying problem is that um, you get you get a thing with some success and this applies to public goods, like because this is one of the reasons why people want to like defund public goods or like they are cynical about public goods is, OK, I support this public good um, being being built like a national park or, or something like, yeah, we should staff it with people. But then like those structures you set up to maintain the public good over time, they just like ossify and crumble and they become their The reason for their being is like their own existence rather than like supporting the public good. And so they don't adapt to like the changing needs of people of the public good. And then there becomes like this combative nature between the thing, just the entity that has its own momentum and its own like agenda that is no longer necessarily tied to like society's like needs and requirements of the public good. It just wants to perpetuate itself. And I think that's what Wikipedia is in. That's like what Twitter is in right now. And um, it's, it's kind of lost the plot. Right. And like, Wikipedia still for most things, it's fine, but you can find like some really big rifts and holes in, in Wikipedia where there's just like, um, there's a bunch of subcultures of editors and unpaid people who just have a lot of emotional investment and want to like defend their area. And the incentives just aren't aligned to like make this thing the best for the public to use, whatever that, whatever those terms are, it is make this what I want it to be as the person sitting here at this point in content production. Mm. And uh, let me, just like anything else, let me accumulate power. Um, and I justify that by, you know, my view of Wikipedia is the best view. And so it's a, it's okay if I'm consolidating power because that's better for Wikipedia. And so we just get these, these cycles. And that's why I'm saying like, I don't know if we have the right, right model for this because we need something that's way more dynamic and flexible and can like have the ability built in to be like jobs done, you know, or like mm -hmm. we did it. And if we do, then we go away, you know, like I think there has to be that potential or else everything will just kind of like, uh, eat itself with its own, uh, success. I I'd like to think that it's a matter of value alignment and incentive alignment. You know, I, I think these are things that have been said in some way throughout uh, this discussion. Whether Wikipedia is next to fall, like Twitter, I think it's a matter of being able to uh, describe the value of it and align people who share those values to defend it and to develop the incentives to encourage uh, organizations to support its independence, right? Uh, to remain decentralized and not owned by an, a single individual like 
Twitter now is. I I remain optimistic only because I see how this technology in the decentralized space, DAO specifically, how there have been these renewed conversations about ownership, um, you know, uh, renewed, you know, shared ownership specifically, uh, renewed conversations about governance, renewed conversations about uh, incentive alignment. And the most important piece that I think that has been changing in Web3, and I think potentially even, uh, actually I'm betting on this, that it can uh, leak out to Web2 is non-financial incentives. Um, Because if we've seen kind of some of the decline of Web3, uh, at least recently, is because it's developed a lot on top of these very uh, financialized structures. And if we believe that Wikipedia is next to fall because of some sort of financial, you know, structure that can be consumed like it was, uh, you know, over at Twitter, then it's very likely. But if we can imagine there being non-financial structures developed with incentives as well to match um, that can support the development of this, of a community, of a protocol, uh, a platform, uh, I think that, you know that the, there's, you know that that's a silver silver lining. There's a the light at the end of the tunnel. That's the one that I'm running towards. Yeah, and along those lines, um, Nathan Schneider's done a ton of work um, in exit to community concepts, and a lot of DAOs are, are based on this concept. So that, like like Humpty's saying, that the financial incentives aren't there, but the entity itself is is exited to the community instead of a corporate entity being exited to shareholders. And I think that's um, fascinating for me to see that evolve um, through DAOs. And that gives me hope as well. Um, So that research, I would look deeply into his research um, because he's been leading that charge for a while now. Okay, well, we're at the top of the hour. Um, I wanna give you guys some final thoughts on this. Um, Just uh, now that we're fully entrenched in an ad model right now and we've seen how terrible it can be. um, Do you think it is possible to completely separate the public good from the business model and the ad model from from each other and how long do you think it'll take and this is the last question and we'll just go with it from there after we've solved this problem (laughs) crystal i'll let you start oh that's such a good one um the optimist in me thinks that we can solve this um i do think blockchain technology will be a huge key in solving it but the pessimist in me understands that first the collapse has to happen. And I think we went on this tangent with censorship too. I think the systems have to collapse on themselves, which they are doing right now in real time. And then we just have to have the solution for people to come into so that they can understand it and see its value as a public good. And then it can grow from there. And um, yeah, I, and God knows how long that's going to take. I, I got nothing on that front. <laughs> Humpty, you have any last final thoughts on that? Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I completely agree. I think it's a matter of values. Uh, I think in terms of the ad model today, it, sure, I think it's broken. I think that there's there's ways to innovate on that. I think that at least looking at it from the perspective of Web3, there is a better way to kind of temp check communities and find alignment between them and the protocols or, or platforms that 
they wish to support and participate in. I do believe that in the future, the, the ad the ad model is going to look very different from the way that it looks today. How exactly? I don't know, but I do believe that there's going to this this idea of community is going to be leading the charge in a very interesting way where people are going to come around a idea, uh, a group of collaborators, um, a mission, and they're going to want to support that. And I think that they're going to want to put their money uh, where their mouth is to make sure that these organizations and ideas thrive. Uh, yeah, I think maybe my rants make me seem like not an optimist, but I might be the most optimistic person here. Um, I think we're definitely going to, I don't know if separating business from public goods is the right framing even. I think it's what we have now, but I think our definition of what public goods and maybe even business is is really going to change in order to solve this, Like, which I think it will. Like, I was definitely... Um, not optimistic before I came into Web3. And then I was like, oh, this is where all the leaders and like the smart people are and the people who are like working on these problems rather than just like playing the same games. And um, so, yeah, that's made me really optimistic. I think like Comte said, the the shared ownership is like a big um, factor because um, I think when you remove people from like the means of production on the things that they consume, um, then it's very easy for them to like act in like pathological or toxic ways. And I think the the decentralization decentralization is really a pushing out to the communities, um, getting smaller, finding your communities, and within that community, it's very easy to like be altruistic and and see like the direct result of funding public goods because you're benefiting from them and those things, it just, it just gets easier. I think the national global scale is, is hard and that's why we're going back to, to the local level. And Eric, you get the final word. Uh, I mean, I, I, I agree with everything that everyone said and maybe just one, one thing to, to illustrate it, um, you know, for the past 250 years since the industrial revolution, like technology has, you know, produced these amazing advances and, you know, they're, they're life-changing at, at first and, and you can push the envelope and then the technology uh, begins to mature and then the industrialists of the world, like, uh, turn it into to a commodity that just becomes, you know, very plain and ordinary and uh, less sexy. Um, and then, and then it tends to make start making things worse instead of better. And and then that's when in the past, like the public and the people have kind of stepped in to to claw things back and 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 shake it up a little bit. And now we're in the information age, and uh, information, and specifically our our attention, uh, is the commodity of of this century. Um, and uh, when I signed up to be a journalist. Uh, 25 years ago, I didn't expect uh, that I would uh, in 25 years start to feel like one of those factory workers just uh, <laughs> churning out that commodity every day and, you know, churning out the the necessary pieces of content to get the necessary amount of eyeballs to uh, attract the necessary amount of advertisers. Um, but like that is kind of what my life is a lot of days. 
And so, yeah, I'm hoping we can, you know, move more in the direction that Humpty is talking about where we once again say like, ah, you know what, like, maybe this isn't, maybe we don't want to be our attention to be the commodity and this isn't how we want to be managed. So uh, we're going to decide for ourselves as communities uh, where the value is and how it should accrue and be distributed accordingly. Nice. Decentralization, community focus to end it out. Um, anyway, so speaking of public goods, uh, Journo Dow has an NFT and um, to not for speculation, purely to support the mission of Journo Dow and a percentage of that will go to Crypto Sapiens as well. Um, this is the final episode on this. Um, you can find it at cryptosapiens.xyz. And you can also go to journodow.xyz and learn about the mission and, and look into the content of, of both projects. And uh, thank you guys for jumping on this final and fourth and final episode. And uh, hope you enjoy it. <laughs>